Well, good morning. He is risen. Amen. Amen. Praise God for that reality this morning. I want to welcome you all here on this beautiful Resurrection Sunday. If you are visiting with us for the first time, we are thankful that you've chosen to worship here with us. Listen, if there is anything at all that you need, any questions that you may have, uh, make sure you find one of our wonderful members. They would be more than happy to assist you in any way. Again, it is a beautiful Sunday morning, and we have reason to celebrate this morning. Amen? Amen. 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 Listen, if you have your Bible, and I hope that you do, turn with me to the Gospel according to John chapter 2. We will be working through the book of John. We have been, I rather, the last couple of weeks, and this morning we will continue in our study in John chapter 2. We will work through verses 18 through 22. John chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. I'll be reading from the ESV. So what I want to do is read these verses, and then I'll pray and ask God to bless our time to speak to us through the teaching of his word. So John chapter 2, starting at verse 18, and it reads, So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are glorious. You are the God of all creation. You alone are worthy of all the praise. Lord, I am a man who is limited, who is flawed in my understanding, limited in my abilities, a man who is sinful. I stand here this morning as a man who is desperately dependent upon the Spirit of God to be at work. Father, I thank you that Jesus is alive, that he is the risen Savior, and that, God, you will assist your servant during this time. So, Father, that's my prayer. That is what I ask, is that your spirit be at work in and through me during this time to glorify yourself, to magnify the name of the risen Savior that is Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to see what we can't see on our own. Help us to know what we don't know. As we work through these verses together, Lord, open our minds to the reality, to the truth of the resurrection, and to the manifested glory of Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray that through it all, you would be honored, gloried, glorified, and praised. And I ask these things in Jesus' name and God's people said, amen, amen. So the Oxford Dictionary defines the word authority this way, quote, the power or right to give orders, make decisions, and enforce 
obedience. Listen, I think the idea of authority is something that we're all familiar with. It's not a concept that is lost or foreign to many of us in here today. I think most of us encounter some sort of authority in our daily lives. Listen, to the children in this room, your immediate authority is your parents, right? You must submit yourself to their rules and regulations. You must submit yourself to their leadership and what it is they're calling you to do. For us as citizens here in the city of Lynchburg, right, or in the country of the United States, we must submit to public officials, to authorities such as police officers. Whether we want to or not is beside the point, but there is an established authority. Maybe you're in here and you play some sort of sport. Maybe you play ball, right? Then your coach would be the authority over the players and the team. There are a lot of examples of authority that I could point to this morning. Now, while authority is indeed something that's very commonplace uh, amongst society and within our civilization, the reality is this, as human beings, we buck against authority. We don't like it because it goes against our natural bend. It brushes up against our inherent desire to do the things that we want to do, right? So as a result, we often challenge the authorities in our lives, don't we? And not, don't, not only do we challenge them, we see many that debate the very source of an individual's authority. The reality is that no authority has been challenged questioned or disputed more than the authority of God. Now, there's a lot more that I could say about that, and we'll get to that a little bit more in just a few moments. But the text before us this morning presents a group of individuals questioning the authority of Jesus. You see, if you recall last week, we visited the scene where Jesus cleanses the temple you recall, Pastor Tyler walked us through that section of Scripture where Jesus makes a whip and he walks into the temple and he runs out uh, the oxen and he flips over the table of the money changers. He exercises a righteous indignation, anger, because a house that was supposed to be dedicated to prayer and the worship of his father had become a place of commerce. See, Jesus simply had a desire to see his father worshiped rightly appropriately, with reverence, awe, and respect. And as we pick up in verse 18 here this morning, this is just a continuation of this encounter. As we look at verses 18 through 22, I want to examine a couple of the differing responses. There, are, uh, In particular, there are two groups of people. There are the uh, Jews, right, the ones who were in opposition to Jesus, and then there are Jesus's disciples. And what I want to do is look at the response of these two groups of individuals. Now listen, there is a lot happening in these verses, and we'll address all of that. In fact, there is a glorious truth that is contained within this text. It is a claim that Jesus makes about himself. In fact, it is a claim that is so breathtaking, so astonishing, so magnificent, it is totally worth our time and attention. And my hope is that the majesty and glory of Christ would be illuminated before us today. 
as we celebrate, as we celebrate this Easter Sunday, this Resurrection Sunday. My hope is that we would be confident in the matchless, all-encompassing, eternal authority of Christ and his promise to provide new and abundant life to his people through the power of the resurrection. So with that in mind, let's work through these verses together. Right? So what happened? So Jesus last week, if you recall, he has entered this temple and he's caused quite the scene. He's made a whip and he's driven out the livestock and the merchants and he's flipped over the tables. I mean, Jesus has caused quite the ruckus here. And as Pastor Tyler pointed out last week, listen, nobody tried to stop Jesus. Nobody engaged him physically. They didn't try to arrest him or apprehend him. Nobody laid a hand on him. There was no physical violence towards him. I want you to just think about this. Jesus walks in there and disrupts everything they had going on. This is something they had probably grown used to, things that they had established, things that they had done their way for quite some time. I mean, who is this man to just walk in here and disrupt all of these things this way? That's not how people conducted business then. You didn't just walk into the temple, see things that you didn't like going on, and mess them up. That's not how a man conducted himself given that context in that culture during that time. So naturally, what did the Jews do? They question Jesus. This is where we really get to the response, first and foremost, of these Jews. How do they respond to Jesus, what he's said and what he's done? And so in verse 18, it says, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? You see, while nobody dared to engage Jesus physically, they certainly did engage him and confront him verbally. See, these men are essentially questioning the authority of Jesus. And they want a sign. Give us a sign. Give us some proof that gives you the authority to come in here and disrupt things this way. You see, for a man to do the things Jesus did, he better have some pretty impressive credentials. Right? Sadly, the fact that they demanded a sign from Jesus at all says a lot about their spiritual condition. It says a lot about their hearts. I mean, honestly, what other sign could they have wanted than what he had just done in front of them? That says something about this man, right? But they demanded more. They wanted a sign. Show us something. What can you give to us to prove you have this type of authority? And in reality, what's actually happening here is this was an effort for them to dodge any sort of accountability, You see, this group of Jews demanded a sign as a way to deflect from what should have been their focus, addressing their unrighteous worship. You see, instead of asking for a sign to prove Jesus' authority, what they should have been asking is, how can I worship the Lord rightly? What must I do to be saved, to offer appropriate worship to our great and glorious God? That should have been the question that they were asking. But this is a typical method of deflection. And unfortunately, this isn't something that's exclusive to this group of men. See, we're all guilty of this at times, aren't we? I can be the first to say that I do this. When we're face to face with our own sin, whether it's reading the word of God 
and it's acting as a mirror for me to see myself accurately. Or by God's grace, he sends a brother or sister to me to call me on all of my stuff. Right? But rather than acknowledging my own sin and wrestling with the things that are happening in my heart, what do I do? I deflect. Man, what gives you the right to say these things to me? What gives you the right to come to me and challenge me this way? See, we challenge the authority of our brothers and sisters who try to hold us accountable. We'll dismiss what the Bible says when it doesn't line up with what we want and desire. Man, how often do we do this? See, as I mentioned a moment ago, the authority of God is constantly in question. And that's a concept that's as old as time itself. I want you to even consider the world, consider unbelievers, those who lack the conviction of the Holy Spirit. What happens when you approach them with the commands of Scripture and you try to present to them a biblical framework for how we are to live in light of the reality of this great creator? What do they do? They immediately question his authority. Man, what gives this God, if he even does exist, the right to tell me how to live? So they question his authority on everything. On the biblical definition of marriage, on what it means to be a man and a woman, on what it means to be created in the image of God, on what it means to uh, have a certain ethnicity, on what it means to be obedient, to submit, on what it means to be a human being. They question the authority of God on all of these issues, and they want nothing to do with him and his word because they don't view him as the ultimate authority. Listen, God has established the foundations of the world. By his power, he's stretched out the heavens and the earth. By his divine power, he turns the hearts of kings. He changes the seasons. He is this thrice holy God lifted up high and elevated, and his glory fills all the earth. He is a God like no other. Brothers and sisters, he does not need our affirmation in order to establish his authority. He is God. He is the sovereign ruler and maker of all Things. He rules and reigns supreme regardless of how you feel about him. You see, for these Jews, they wanted some sign to prove the authority of Christ. They needed something from him. You see, as we read through the scriptures, scriptures Jesus would openly rebuke those that demanded a sign before they would believe. Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 through 40. You don't have to turn there. I'll read that for us. Matthew 12, verses 38 through 40 says this. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights, in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So Jesus rebukes them for demanding a sign. He even repeats this again in Matthew chapter 16, verses 1 through 4, but he adds a little caveat there. He says, listen, you guys know how to interpret the sky and the seasons, but you can't interpret and determine the signs of the times. 
wicked and adulterous generation you are. See, furthermore, the scriptures tell us that Jesus had performed many signs and miracles among the people, but they would not believe. Again, at the heart of it, it is just a question of his authority and a way for these men to uh, dismiss the call to look at their their own lives, to examine the hard-hearted, stiff-necked rebellion that characterized who they were. Now, although this was the case, Jesus was more than happy to oblige. They say, hey, we want a sign. Jesus is more than happy to engage with them. He says, hey, I'll give you a sign. He says, I will give you a sign that will leave no doubt about my authority. It will be a sign so incredible that it manifests the fullness of the glory of Jesus Christ. And what is the sign that he gives? Verse 19, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, there's no doubt that what Jesus says here, it it baffles these guys. This is a statement that perplexes them. They weren't able to discern the meaning of this sign. And we know this to be true because look at verse 20. Verse 20 says this, then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? You see, first they questioned the authority of Jesus. Now they're confused by his response. You see, both instances simultaneously demonstrate the spiritual blindness of these men. You see, the reason they couldn't understand the meaning behind Jesus' words is because they only saw through natural eyes. They weren't thinking accordingly. You see, verse 21 tells us that Jesus was actually speaking about the temple of his body. And we'll talk about this more in just a moment, but let's continue to examine the response of this group of Jews. So when they hear the word temple, they're only thinking about the physical building in which they are standing. Hence their comment about, man, it's taken 46 years to rebuild this temple. How in the world can you raise it up in three days? Now, a little bit of background here about the temple. This isn't the same temple that King Solomon had built in his day and time. So in Jesus' time, this is a different temple. If you recall, that temple had been destroyed during the time of the Babylonian invasion. If you recall, the Babylonian army invaded. They captured and took into captivity God's people. And during that time, they destroyed the temple. Now, if you go and read the book of Ezra, it'll give us an account of that temple being rebuilt. Uh, In about 20 B.C., uh, Herod began a construction project to rebuild this temple. At this time, when they're having this conversation with Jesus, it's about 26 A.D. So it's been about 46 years since the project began to rebuild the temple. Now, ironically, the temple would be finished in about A.D. 63, and only about seven years later, it would be destroyed again by the Roman army when they invaded the city of Jerusalem. So this is a temple. This isn't the same temple from Solomon's day. This is a temple that's being reconstructed. But I think it's important for our conversation to understand something about this temple. See, why does Jesus' comment here matter? Why are these dudes so flustered by this? Listen, for the Jews, they valued this temple greatly. It had incredible religious significance. It's how they worshiped God. It's where they met with the Lord. 
If someone were to desecrate this temple, man, they could be murdered for that. It's worthy of capital punishment. In fact, they would later twist Jesus's words saying that he had claimed to destroy this temple. And they would attempt to use this as testimony against him during his trial before the council. You can find more on that in Mark chapter 14, Matthew chapter 26. Maybe write those down and just look them up later. But here's the reality. As important as the temple was, Jesus makes it obsolete. Jesus makes the temple obsolete. And here's why. Because of Christ in the new covenant, there's no need to continue offering temple worship in order to please God. You see, if a person desires to worship God rightly and appropriately, we do so by worshiping his son, Jesus Christ. That is the way we appropriately come before the Lord. You see, even in Revelation 21, when the Apostle John is writing again about the new heaven and the new earth, he says in verse 21, or excuse me, verse 22, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. See, there's no more need for this temple. See, worship has nothing to do with brick and mortar buildings or extravagant architecture. It has nothing to do with the place and everything to do with the person, the person and work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You see, Christ is better and more glorious than any temple that you could construct. But these men who stood in opposition to him, they, they missed that. They had missed God, uh, Christ's glory. They had missed his significance. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 12, 6, he says, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. And he's referring to himself. It is him that they must worship. It is Christ they must submit to and adore in order to come before the Lord rightly. But again, tragically, they didn't see Jesus this way. See, these men obviously misunderstood what Jesus was telling them. The Apostle John tells us in verse 21, Jesus was not speaking about the temple built with human hands, but he was pointing them to something far more glorious than that. But they couldn't see it. They were blind to the greater reality of what Jesus was saying. And they weren't the only ones with this spiritual blindness, this lack of understanding. Again, this isn't a problem that's exclusive to this group of men. As we read throughout the gospel accounts in the life of Jesus, there are many times where Jesus would say things to people and they couldn't understand it. They had missed it. Think about John chapter 3, which we'll get to in the next two weeks by God's grace, and the encounter with Jesus and Nicodemus. And he says, you must be born again. Nicodemus says, how can I enter into my mother's womb again and be born? He, he doesn't understand what Jesus is saying. Or even think about in John chapter 6, after Jesus has performed the sign of feeding the 5,000, and he tells them that they must drink of his blood and eat of his flesh, or they have no part of me, and they don't understand what he's saying. And a lot of them depart from him. They're confused by what Jesus is saying. Or even Mark chapter 8 Jesus warns the disciples, he says, watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees. And then the disciples begin having a conversation about bread. They've totally missed the point about what he's talking about. See, confusion over the words of Christ is nothing new. 
And the truth is, this is every single one of us, apart from divine intervention. You see, the Lord must do the work of giving us new eyes to see with. See, without the quickening of the Holy Spirit, apart from his regenerating work, we are unable to see, to understand, or respond to what the Lord God has said. Listen, if you're a believer in this room, thank God for the work of the Holy Spirit. Thank God for opening your eyes to the wonderful realities of Christ Jesus and the truth of his word. What a wonderful, marvelous, miraculous display of grace that is. You see, apart from that grace, we are blind. We are trapped in spiritual darkness. Just like these men, we too are unable to see. See, the reaction of these Jews on this occasion is a great example of the attempts of men to understand spiritual things with a natural mind, a mind that's unrenewed, one that has not been illuminated by the Spirit. So all they're focused on is this physical temple. But Jesus is talking about the temple of his body. If you recall, when I began this message, I said that there's something glorious Something so incredibly magnificent contained within these texts that it demands our attention. Well, this is it. Here it is in verse 21. when it says, he was speaking about the temple of his body. Jesus says, destroy this temple and I will raise it up. Here he is pointing to the most fundamental fact of the Christian faith, his resurrection. I mean, what a remarkable and ridiculous claim this is. How can a man claim that I will die and in three days I will rise from the dead? I mean, this is just crazy. This is absurd, right? Or is it? Or is it? Brothers and sisters, this is a truth upon which we can stand. We can and we must be assured of this claim that we put forth, that Jesus is the risen king, that the resurrection is true. We have to understand why this is so important. You see, Christianity rises and falls based on this fundamental claim. This is foundational to what we say that we believe. Listen, if the resurrection isn't true, then we're like the foolish man who's built his house upon the sand. Listen, if Christ is not risen from the dead, we are a hopeless people. In fact, the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 that we are the most to be pitied. The most to be pitied. Now listen, there are a lot of people out there who will raise millions of objections to the legitimacy of the Christian faith and the claims of this bodily resurrection. Listen, Christ is not without his detractors. There's no shortage of people who dismiss this claim. Now listen, you have conversations with people like most people will give you the existence of Christ, right? Even most legitimate scholars, even the ones who are atheists will say that most of them agree, right, that Jesus was a real person, a person who actually walked the earth, he lived and he died. Most people will give you that, right? That's not really up for debate. The debate has always been about his divinity, 
And of course, the bodily resurrection. Did it really happen? Is this simply a myth? Is it folklore? Is it a tall tale? Brothers and sisters, I want you to know something this morning. Your faith is not a gamble. It's not a roll of the dice. And maybe you're asking yourself, well, brother, how do you know that? How can you be so sure? How do you know that the resurrection of Christ is true? Well, here, let me give you a little bit of biblical evidence. If you would, briefly turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. The Apostle Paul writes for us here. We want to just look at what he writes. Just stick with me here just for a moment. First Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 8. And this is what Paul writes. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Listen, this is one of the simplest apologetics for the validity of the resurrection. It is the eyewitness accounts. Eyewitnesses. Here the Apostle Paul is essentially saying, listen, go ask them yourself. They're all still alive. Go ask them. Listen, if the resurrection isn't true, there are multiple people that will tell you that. I have witnesses. Here's the thing about witnesses. They can either corroborate or deny your claim. So listen, if the one claim that needs to be disproved to disprove Christianity is the resurrection of Christ, why does Paul point it out so clearly and then say, now you have the opportunity to go ask? Go ask them. They're alive. There are witnesses. I mean, why would he sabotage himself this way if the resurrection isn't a fact? There are multiple eyewitness accounts to the risen Jesus, and probably the greatest of these is the Apostle Paul himself, right? I want you to think about something here. Why would the risen Jesus appear to one of his enemies? I mean, that's essentially who Paul was. He was persecuting the church. He hated Christians. Why on earth would he now claim to have seen this risen Christ unless it was true? Not only that, why would a man then dedicate his life to that? Why would he stop, do a 180, and turn his life around in this supernatural way? People don't do that for things that aren't true. So we have these eyewitness accounts. In fact, we have a list of things that at the time of these writings that could have been fact-checked. Right? You could have questioned the eyewitnesses. You could have searched the tomb. Right? You could have gone and asked Joseph from Arimathea, hey, where'd you put him? Let's go to the tomb and check. We don't believe it's true. Let's just go look. 
Let's just go look for ourselves. You could have verified the crucifixion account. You could have gone to people and said, hey, did you see him on the cross? Yeah, we saw it. Yes, we saw it. But seriously, if they really wanted to end the resurrection discussion, they would have only had to do one thing. Find the body. Produce the body. Where is it? If it's all a hoax, if it's just a scam, just find the body and we're done. You find the body of Jesus, I'll shut my Bible, I will take my stuff, and we'll go on home because we're finished. But they couldn't do it. They couldn't do it. Now, of course, there are many theories about this, right? They'll say, all oh, the disciples stole the body, right? But that would have been really hard to do with armed Roman soldiers guarding the temple. That would have been tough for them to get in there around them and steal the body, right? Then people will say, oh, well, Jesus didn't really die. He was crucified. They thought he was dead, but he actually wasn't. So they put him in the uh, tomb, and then he just woke up a couple hours later, unwrapped himself, went on about his business. Listen, the Romans created crucifixion. They were experts at it. They were going to make sure you were dead, like dead dead, especially considering the circumstances around this Jesus Christ. Like, this isn't just any ordinary, uh, any normal death and burial. We got to make sure this dude is gone. There's some crazy circumstances around this case. We're not going to let that slide. We got to make sure this dude is dead and gone. Right? Then people will say, oh, well, they went to the wrong tomb. And, oh, it's just, a, it's, it's crazy. It's a hoax. There's so many theories and objections. And we could stand here this morning and dismiss and, dis- and debunk all of these objections. We don't, we don't have time to get into all of that. However, one of the things that I do want to point to that's really even helped to solidify my own faith, one of the greatest evidences for the truth of the resurrection is the persecution of Christ's followers and the early church. Again, this is one of the things that helped me This is one of the things that did it for me, that helped to solidify my own faith. I want you to consider the fate of Jesus' followers, right? Church tradition tells us what? That all of Jesus' disciples, with the exception of John, were martyred. Peter crucified upside down. James, the half-brother of Jesus, thrown from a building and then stoned. The apostle Paul beheaded outside of the city of Rome. All right, listen, rarely are you going to find men that stand for the truth. You're certainly not going to find somebody who's going to die for a lie. Why on earth, if it's just a hoax, if they stole the body and it's just a scam, why die for that? Unless you're totally convinced. Unless you know and believe, listen, we've seen him. He is the risen king. Take my life. I'm on to glory. None of it matters. What I'm standing on is absolutely true. Think about the persecution. Think about the first century and the emergence of the church in the face of persecution and tribulation. These believers understood that what they stood on was absolutely fact, which is why they were willing to surrender their lives for it. Christian, I want you to understand this morning that you too have a faith that is founded on facts. The foundation of what we believe and the hope that we have rests upon the resurrection of Christ. Listen, the resurrection is the hinge upon which the door of faith 
swings. The reason we celebrate today and really every day is because we serve a risen Savior, not one who is dead. Listen, over 2,000 years ago, Christ arose. He rolled away the stone. He walked out of that grave, and now he sits at the right hand of Father, uh, interceding on our behalf. He has conquered the grave. We have this eternal, abundant life. We have victory over sin and death, a hope and a future that is secured in Christ Jesus, the risen King. Do you believe that this morning? Listen, the resurrection is the greatest sign or manifestation of Christ's glory and authority. See, dying and then raising from the dead three days later is a sign that should convince anyone. Listen, if a man comes to you and he says, hey, I'm going to die, and in three days I'm going to rise from the dead, and he actually does it, man, you got to listen to everything he says after that. Every claim that he makes about himself must be true. We must believe that Jesus is actually who he claimed to be. You see, Jesus says in Luke chapter 16, verse 31, and this again is an indictment of these men and their response to Jesus. He says, even if one were to rise from the dead, they would not be convinced. And this tells us that there will still be those, despite the resurrection, despite this miraculous sign of the glory of Christ, that will still die in their unbelief. See, if you recall, even after Jesus' resurrection, right, we just talked about this a little bit, the persecution that believers face. Read the book of Acts, right, and you still have this Sanhedrin, this Jerusalem council, and they're still persecuting the believers, the followers of Jesus Christ. They refuse to believe. Even when they come to him and say, we've seen him. He is the risen king. He is this awaited Messiah that the scriptures have foretold about. And they want nothing to do with it. Even after this miraculous sign, they're blinded by their unbelief. And they could not see the glory of Jesus Christ. And that is the state of every man until God works in our hearts and opens our eyes. And so, so we understand how the this group of Jews has responded. Let's look at how these disciples respond. Let's go back to John chapter 2. We'll continue to work through that. So it says, although that Jesus responded, right, although Jesus has responded or been met with responses, I should say, of doubt, questioning, right, the authority of Christ, that was not the response of his disciples. Let's look at verse 22. It says, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. You see, where Jesus' opponents had responded by questioning him, the disciples responded in faith. The text tells us that it wasn't until after Jesus rose from the dead that they remembered what he had said. So that would even indicate that even these men who had walked with Jesus during his earthly ministry Right? They'd been privy to the mysteries of the kingdom. They'd sat with Jesus. They'd been taught by him. They still didn't understand everything that he said right away. They were also confused by what Jesus said. But they believed in him nonetheless. Although they, they, although they didn't understand what Jesus had said at the moment, listen, Jesus' words to them were not useless. They would bear fruit in due time. Even though it wasn't until after Jesus rose 
from the dead, that they began to understand everything that he said in light of this resurrection. And what did it do? This really only helped to cement their belief in the truth and the accuracy of the Old Testament prophecies and the words of Jesus. Notice how those two things are on par with each other. How the prophecy, the word of God, is on par with the words of Jesus. Right? Don't miss that. They said they believed both the scripture and the words of Jesus Christ. See, this group of disciples, listen, they were just common men. They weren't learned scholars, right? And even if you think about the Pharisees, this group of Jews, these men who opposed Jesus, they were very learned. They knew the uh, scriptures. And even despite their knowledge, they still couldn't see Jesus for who he was. They couldn't understand the things that he was telling them about himself, about the age to come as the Savior and Son of God. But these men, these disciples, these men who followed Jesus, they knew enough of the scriptures that they began interpreting what Jesus said and did according to the scriptures. If you recall back in verse 17, they had remembered what? That it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So that was them hearkening back to Psalm 69, 9. And then here in verse 22, John says that they saw the resurrection of Christ and they believed the scriptures. Now here the word scripture is in this singular form. So a lot of commentators, a lot of scholars believe that uh, John is maybe pointing to one singular Old Testament scripture, most likely Psalm 16, a messianic psalm. However, this could also be just a general reference to the Old Testament, to all of the Old Testament prophecies about Jesus Christ and his resurrection. Regardless, the point remains the same. They believed in Christ and they believed in the scriptures. See, they had a confidence in the word of God. And here's where I would challenge each of us. Here's a great place for us to pause and really consider the confidence that we have in the word of God. Do we believe that the Bible is the written, revealed word of God? Do we trust and believe that this word is actually true? Do we have enough confidence in God's word and in the words of Christ to actually live by them? Do we submit our lives to what this Bible teaches us? Do we have this kind of confidence in the word of God? Do we read through the scriptures and we're reminded of the promises of Jesus to preserve and keep and secure eternity for his people? Are we trusting in that? Or is our confidence elsewhere? Is it in the world? Is it in man? Is it in philosophies and all these other ideas? Are we standing firmly confident in this book? Listen, this is the written, revealed word of God. Why would we turn anywhere else? Why do we need anything else? Listen, the scriptures have stood the test of time. The word of God is not in need of our validation. It is enough. And that goes for the Old Testament and New Testament. Amen? Both. Listen, Jesus quoted from the Old Testament as if it were right and true and good. That should be enough for us to uh, validate the authority of that text. Listen, if the incarnate word 
is quoting from the written word, that is a ringing endorsement of the scriptures. That is all we need. Listen, for these disciples, they were convinced. The scriptures had foretold it. Jesus had claimed it and fulfilled it. And because of that, they believed. They had seen the risen Christ. And that had given them an even greater assurance of who he claimed to be. Listen, if we consider this entire encounter, we understand that this is about the question of the authority of Christ. What gives him the authority to do these things, to say any of the things that he does? Where does Christ get his authority? Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're like this group of men. You're challenging the authority of Christ, which is essentially challenging the authority of God. Maybe you've heard or you've even read some of the things that Jesus says and does, and maybe you're like, man, that that just doesn't sit well with me. Maybe you want to push back against those things. Maybe you're here and you want some sort of explanation. What gives Jesus this right to dictate the way that I live as he does? What gives him the right to make the claims that he does, to demand my worship and devotion and all of these things? Listen, the authority of Christ is not given to him by some sort of government institution. Christ's authority is not derived from what you make of him. His authority isn't affected by whether you believe in him or submit to him or not. His authority is undisputed, it's unrivaled, and it's unmistakable because he is the risen Savior, the Son of God. He is the spotless lamb that takes away the sins of the world, the one through whom the whole world and everything was created. He has all power in his hands, including the power to lay down his life and take it up again. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is simply the most powerful, most glorious, most stunning demonstration of his divine authority. And as we sit here this morning, it's really only one of two camps that you're in. You either believe that or you don't. It's one or the other. You see, for Jesus' disciples, they were eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Christ and all of his glory. And because of that, they became evangelists. Right? They had this burning desire to go forth with the gospel of Jesus Christ, this risen Savior, this all-sufficient Messiah who was worthy of all praise and adoration. You see, the reason that these events right here are written down and recorded is so that you would believe. It's for the purpose of evangelizing because these brothers had a burning desire to bring the Savior of the world to the world, to present him to the lost. That's why they wrote these things down. They saw him rise from the dead. They saw all of the signs. They heard all of his teaching, and they were moved. They were compelled to share Christ with the world. Christian, I'll ask, are you compelled the same way? Do we want to go to our family members, to our neighbors, to our friends, and tell them the good news of the gospel, to tell them that Jesus is alive, We serve a God that is alive and well and active, not a dead one. He's not some prophet. He's not some made-up God. 
Jesus is alive. He's risen. Brothers and sisters, are we compelled as these disciples were to believe and then go into the world and share the glorious truth of Christ with those around us? That would be my question to us this morning for the believers in the room. Now, if you're, maybe you're here this morning and you just, this isn't sticking with you. You just, I'm not a believer. I don't know about this Jesus thing. I just don't believe. And if you're an unbeliever in this room, not only is Jesus resurrected, Jesus is the resurrected, guess what? Jesus is also the redeemer. All of the things that must be reconciled in your life and in your heart, the things that you feel you need and desire that are missing and lacking, Jesus is those for you. That's why he tells the woman at the well, if you drink from the water that I give you, you'll never have to go anywhere else. You may still have those longings and desires. Guess what? You don't have to turn anywhere else to find them. The living water that is Jesus Christ. I would challenge you this morning, if you walked into this room as an unbeliever, I would challenge you this morning to look at Christ for the very first time. Man, if the Spirit is is quickening you right now, if something is stirring in your heart, in your spirit, don't deny that. There's a reason all of us are gathered here together this this morning. There's a reason that over 2,000 years ago, something happened, and we're still talking about it. And all these lives have been transformed by the power of this message. It's not empty. It's not meaningless. It's authentic. It's real. It's genuine. And it's the supernatural power of God to save the sinner. And that could be you this morning. That could be you this morning. It is in Christ Jesus we have all that we need. He is the Savior, the King, the Messiah. He has purchased our freedom. And in him, we are eternally secure. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we are thankful for this opportunity to to be together and to just study your word as a body of believers. God, we are reminded of the joy and the life that we have because of the resurrection of Christ Jesus. Father, I pray for all of those in the room, for the believer first, that they would be reminded daily of what this means, and that we would each be moved to a place where we are just compelled to share the truth of this risen Savior with those around us. Father, I also ask for those who are here this morning that don't know you, that are apart from you. God, I pray that they would wrestle through the things that have been discussed this morning. And God, I pray that you would open their hearts and their minds to receive the truth of Jesus Christ, this glorious Savior and Messiah. And God, they would respond with submission and surrender to Christ Jesus. Father, with the rest of the time that we have here together this morning, I just ask that we would honor you, bring glory to your name, and our worship would be pleasing to you. And ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.